You are listening to audio from the Rail City campus of CA Church. We are a church fervently committed to bringing the good news to the city of Port Moody. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, as I said, it's great to be with you. This morning, we're continuing our series through the book of Acts that we've called Witness, where where we started three weeks ago and have been walking through the story of the early church. And so today we're looking at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. So if you have a Bible, you could turn there right now. And, and while you're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of a recap about what's been going on in and through the text in Acts chapter 1 and the first part of Acts chapter 2. Acts is essentially the origin story of the church. You know, we're here together in Port Moody this morning, CA Church, Real City. But this idea of the church is not a new phenomenon. It's not something that, that, that we came up with. It's been going on for over 2,000 years. And while this expression of the church in Port Moody is new, you know, we celebrated our one-year anniversary last week. And how awesome was that? So much fun. But, but, but this, this whole idea, we, we we're joining in on a story that's been going on for centuries. And the book of Acts kind of paints this beautiful picture of the origin story of where it all began. The book was written by a guy named Luke. He was a doctor, a really well-educated guy. And this is a sequel to his first book, which was sort of a biography of the life of Jesus, where he wrote about Jesus' teachings and his miracle working and and then his death, burial, and resurrection. And then Acts chapter 1 picks up right before Jesus ascends into heaven. And even though Jesus won't be with them any longer physically after he ascends into heaven, he promises that he's going to send his spirit to come and to be with them to empower his disciples to be his witness in Jerusalem and Judea, kind of there locally, but also, he says, around the world. But he tells them, don't go off and try to do this on your own strength. Don't go right now. Wait for the Holy Spirit who's coming. He's going to empower you to be my witness. And, and so Jesus ascends into heaven, and then just as he instructed his disciples, they wait. There's about 120 of them, probably not more, many more than the people gathered here in this room this morning. And they waited for the Spirit to come. And Cam unpacked this part of the story for us last week, uh, where they were in this upper room together, this group of just over 100 people, probably sitting around. I imagine they singing together from time to time. They were praying together. They ate together. They're waiting. They're wondering what this outpouring of the Spirit is going to be like. What's it going to feel like when the Spirit comes? And then it happens. They hear this incredibly loud sound and this powerful wind. Maybe it started as a gust. But then it blows through the entire house where they're sitting. This high-pressure wind. And that's something completely unexpected. They start to speak in these different languages. And, you know, there were lots of other people gathered in Jerusalem at that time because there was a massive festival going on. And all the people were from all different areas of the ancient world. They spoke different languages. But they heard these Greek-speaking disciples of Jesus speaking their language. It was this crazy moment. And some people thought they were drunk with wine. We talked about that last week. Some people thought they were crazy or delusional. But Peter got up and he shared this powerful sermon, showing them that this was actually a a fulfillment of the prophecies of old. You know, the sermon was, was okay. There wasn't any crazy eloquent words that he shared, but the Spirit used it, spoke through his words in power. And it touched the people who were gathered in a really profound way. They were cut to the heart, the text says. Deeply convicted, they committed their lives to Jesus. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And then we pick up the story in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. One more note before we read the text. Um, One of the unique ways that Luke, the author, writes, and he did this in both his his first book, the biography, as well as in Acts, 
is he writes about these different events that are happening. He says, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And then he takes a moment, kind of a summary paragraph, and he kind of unpacks the culture of what's going on in around the different events that were happening. So he says, you know, this happened, and this person was healed, and, and, and they waited in the upper room, etc., etc. And he says, and this is kind of the ethos of what the church was like as those events were happening. So that's kind of what we're, this is the first kind of summary paragraph in, in the book of Acts. Okay, so why don't you stand to your feet, if you're able and willing, and we'll read together Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and on. Here's what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that were performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray and then we'll unpack those words together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this this book of Acts that gives us this picture of, of your church, of the, the origin story of our faith. And as we look at this, this section of scripture today, Acts 2, 42 to 47, I pray that you would speak to us and that we would hear the things that you want us to hear. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, according to Rodney Stark, who is a sociologist, he says that, that the growth of the early church is arguably the most remarkable sociological movement in history. In AD 40, there was roughly a thousand Christians in the Roman Empire. And then by AD 350, there was 30 million. It's estimated that just over 50% of the population had converted to Christianity in just over 300 years. That's incredible. In his book, The The Triumph of Christianity, he writes, Jesus was a teacher and a miracle worker who spent nearly all his brief ministry in a tiny and obscure province of Galilee, often preaching to outdoor gatherings. A few listeners took up his invitation to follow him, and a dozen or so more became his devoted disciples. When he was executed by the Romans, his followers were probably no more than a few hundred. Then he asks this question. He says, how is it possible that an obscure Jewish sect would become the largest religion in the world. Like, how did it happen? Three years of ministry in the middle of nowhere, and yet his following would grow and grow, and eventually this movement would bring the the Roman Empire to its knees. And on top of that, the early church didn't have anything that we in the modern age think is essential for church growth. They didn't have any church buildings or facilities. They they, they didn't have a a pithy vision statement or articulated values. They didn't have any social media. They didn't have uh, a live stream service. They didn't have any of these things. They didn't even have the completed New Testament. Followers of Jesus were often deeply misunderstood. They were persecuted. Some would be called to give up their lives, would be martyred for their faith. Yet they loved and they served and they prayed and they blessed one another. And slowly but constantly, over 300 years, they brought the entire Roman Empire to its knees. How did they do it? Well, they did it through love. Empowered by the Spirit, they loved each other and the world around them in these beautiful ways. The early church became this kind of new community 
this new humanity, a counterculture society of people who, who experienced the love of Jesus, and then they were compelled to reorient their entire lives, the way they spent their money, the way they spent their time, the people they hung out with. And it was so compelling to the world around them that it got people's attention. They lived this life of devotion, devoted to one another, and also devoted to Jesus and his way. Look at the way that this section of Scripture opens. It says, you know, Luke says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. This word translated here as devotion, it comes from the Greek word uh, proskatero, which means steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. See, they weren't half in, half out in their devotion. They were, they were deeply committed to Jesus and to this new community of faith. For them, the Christian faith wasn't just something that they went to once a week at 10 a.m., maybe that they showed up to at 10.05, sang a few songs, heard someone talk about the Bible, drank some coffee, ate a baked good, or two, or three. This, wasn't, this, is what, this isn't what it looks like. No, they devoted their entire lives to living out their faith. Daily meeting together, daily rescheduling their lives so that they could be together, reaching souls together, sharing everything they had, bearing each other's burdens, giving to the poor and to the needy. I don't know about you, but when I look at Luke's description here in Acts chapter 2, but also through the rest of the book, when I look at his description of the early church, and then I look at the kind of Western church, here in Canada, in North America, it doesn't often look that similar. <laughs> like, like of what I've experienced in Canada and North America. Like, like, you know, my experience of the church has been, has been not that it's necessarily looked like this deeply committed community. There's certainly aspects of what we just read that we see in churches. You know, we gather together and we sing and we take up an offering and those sorts of things. But I think if I were to just read Acts and then show up at a Canadian or a Western church, I think it'd say... Is this it? You know, what about that deep devotion to one another? What about sharing everything we have with one another, carrying each other's burdens, bearing one another's needs? You know, why does Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47 look so different to what most of us experience within the church in the West? Well, John Tyson, who's, who's a pastor and author in New York City, he points out that by and large, we live in a preference-based society. While the early church, they were this commitment-based community. This preference-based community versus, uh, versus commitment-based. See, community is a bit of a buzzword in our society. It, it has been for quite some time, but especially with the rise of social media and Reddit and online communities, I don't think our culture's vision of community is the same type of community that we read about just a moment ago in the book of Acts. Most of our communities are based on preference. You know, we join a community because we have shared hobbies or interests. We share political views, or we all like the same kind of cars, or we're all dog parents, or we're coffee fanatics. And so we set up these Facebook groups, or we gather together every once in a while to talk about our preferences and the things we love. But if our preferences change, we just leave the group. We leave the kind of place that we are. We see, you know, in most cases, we're not deeply committed and devoted to those hobby or interest-based communities. And if our preferences change, we just leave. You know, even we see that happen in churches. We stay or leave the church based on our preferences regarding music or preaching style. Or we stop gathering with the church based on sports schedules. Or maybe for brunch at the hard bean or whatever the case might be. And our church activity, our, our commitment to the gathering with other Christians generally just fits around our busy schedules. Here's how Acts 2.42-47 would read in a preference-based culture. 
They studied the apostles' teaching when they had time. They went to fellowship when they could fit it in. They prayed when they needed something and they got coffee together every now and then. They were content without and had a very low expectation for signs and wonders in their midst. They sometimes talked about generosity, but they kept all their possessions for themselves. Two out of five Sundays, they came to corporate gatherings. They didn't invite people into their homes and they rarely revealed their hearts to one another. They were largely irrelevant to all the people and occasionally someone was randomly saved. But these early Christians, they weren't preference-based. It wasn't a preference-based community. They were commitment-based. They were devoted to one another and to Jesus in his way. And who were these early Christians? They were this incredibly diverse group. You know, remember in Acts chapter 2 at, at Pentecost, there was this massive festival that was going on at that same time as they were waiting in the upper room. And, and so as they began to share the gospel, they were sharing with Asians and Egyptians and Romans and Judeans. And all these different people from different cultures and different backgrounds and different families of origin were getting saved and joining this family of faith. You know, they, they previously were apart. They didn't have anything in common. Their temperaments and personalities weren't the same. They, they, they were from different classes and, and different socioeconomic places. And yet these people were immediately in each other's homes every single night. Their allegiance to Jesus as king required that they would reorient their entire lives. See, becoming a Christian, this devotion to him didn't just look like adding something to their lives. Like adding church attendance or the odd community group gathering. No, embracing a whole new way of life. It required devotion, some radical changes to the way they lived. So they were devoted. They were devoted to one another. They were also devoted to living out the way of Jesus. If we look at Luke's description of, of the early church, the way they lived, I think we can break it down into kind of three main categories. And just because preachers love alliterations, I chose the categories with, all with the letter L, okay? So they devoted themselves to, 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 to learning, to loving, and to embracing an intentional liturgy. So loving, learning, and liturgy. Some work from Tim Keller was incredibly helpful in framing these thoughts. So first, learning. They studied the apostles' teaching. They, they devoted themselves to it. In other words, they dug deep into the teachings of Scripture, New Testament. They read it. They heard it preached on a, on a, at a gathering. They, they reflected on it. They let it shape their day-to-day -day lives. And, and sadly... We are becoming an increasingly biblically illiterate generation. You know, a lot of Christians don't know their Bibles at all. They don't understand the kind of meta-narrative of Scripture or the story of God. They don't understand the context of some really hard passages within the Bible. So then when questions are raised, when, when people challenge our beliefs, for many their faith begins to crumble or fall apart because they don't have this solid biblical understanding, this understanding of Scripture or they don't even know where to look for answers to life's biggest questions. In many ways, I think this is a failure of the church, a failure to really teach the Bible effectively. And I know lots of people who were raised, maybe you were one of those people who were raised in a church context where you don't ask questions. Because to ask questions about your faith is to doubt, and doubting is bad, and so don't ask any questions. But can I just say that you are so welcome to doubt here? <laughs> Embracing doubt is actually a big part of the Christian journey, is walking through things and questioning your faith and learning and growing. You know, there was a mantra or a slogan in the church that was really popular for a few decades, and it still is in certain circles. But this mantra said, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. 
And that works great and all until you experience intense suffering or, or you experience the death of a child or you read about genocides in the Old Testament or you struggle to understand what Scripture says about sexuality and sexual ethics. And without a deep understanding of Scripture and the story of God, those unanswered questions can be, begin to unravel our faith. It happens so quickly. You know, as a church, we want to do whatever we can to help you to find answers to the questions that you're asking. And most of the time, those, those difficult questions can't be answered in just a five-minute conversation after church. But we want to journey together and ask the hard questions and answer the hard questions. Through my Christian walk, there's been so many moments where I've struggled with doubt. And I've been so thankful for a church family around me who's picked me up and, and given me the answers to the questions or helped me to find them in the right place or, or even just listened to me as I struggled and as I processed. It's so important to know and to study scripture. And not only by yourself, but in community. We're actually running a few, a few different classes as a church that I think can help so much with this exact thing. Uh, on Tuesday nights, we're running a class called 10 Hard Questions. It just kicked off last week, and it's something that I would so encourage you to check out. Where uh, we're looking at, at huge questions and oppositions to the Christian faith around suffering. How can a good God allow people to suffer? Uh, around the LGBT LGBTQ plus community and what that looks like with the church around um, the, 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 the exclusive claims about scripture and Christianity and so much more. So if those are some of the questions you have, come on out and, and dig deep and explore. Um, Laura is also running another class starting next week called Help Me to Read the Bible, which is going to explore scripture and, and faith and the basics of theology. We're also running something called Alpha starting in October, which is a series of dinner conversations. Wow, you guys are on it with the slides. It's amazing. Um, with Alpha, and we're looking at dinner conversations and just exploring, asking questions and leaning into worldviews and understanding a Christian worldview. And then every Sunday morning at each of our campuses, we're committed to opening up Scripture and learning from the words of Scripture each and every Sunday as we gather. Okay, so the early church was committed to learning. They were also committed to loving. Look at verse 44 if you have it in front of you. It says that they were together. And, and I want you to see the strength in these words for just a moment. They were together. There's another kind of place in the text where it says that they met together. But right here off the start, it says they were. They were together. See, together wasn't so much something that they did as it was something that they were. That's, that's, that's why they came together, because they, they wanted to be together. That's, that's, that's why it doesn't say that they came together or met together. They did come together. They did meet together, but more than that, they were together. They had become together. Where did they meet? Everywhere. In the temple courts, but also in homes. When did they meet? Constantly. Relentlessly. It says every day they got together. The Christians came together every day in the temple courts, but they couldn't get enough of each other, so they also got together in their homes in the evenings to break bread. Why is this significant? And why does this have anything to do with their love for one another? Well, these people were hungry for Christian community. They loved being together. Their love for one another caused them to gather as often as they possibly could. Regular life was almost seen as kind of an interruption to being together. They were previously apart, divided because of race and class or, or where they were from or their sect of Judaism. But now because of Jesus, they were bound together. They were individuals, but now together as the body of Christ. They couldn't keep from gathering. 
Now, I would imagine that some of you have experienced pastors or preachers like me guilting people from time to time, especially on Christmas or on Easter, saying, why don't you come to church every single Sunday? You know, why do you only come a couple of times a year? Why don't you come to this event or to that event? And there's not necessarily anything wrong with encouraging people to gather together. Actually, Paul does it later on in in, in the New Testament. He urges people to not forsake the gathering together. But you'll notice that right here, there was no need to kind of round them up and try to get them to come. These early Christians didn't need anyone to tell them to gather. They couldn't help themselves. Why? Because they'd experienced something They'd experienced something that they couldn't get enough of. They'd experienced this spirit-empowered community, and there was nothing like it. And this love, this desire to gather, to be together, it was a sign of life in the community. When people experience real life, when they experience real love, then you don't have to work to compel them to come back. It's the natural byproduct of experiencing life. Just like a baby cries when it's born. You don't have to tell it to cry. It cries because there's life in its lungs. Same thing with the church. When there is a life and love in a church, people naturally gather. And this is is a beautiful sign of life and love, a sign of Jesus at work. That's one of the things I love so much about living in Port Moody, is I regularly see families from Rail City Campus kind of gathering together and hanging out together, going on walks, at the pool together, eating meals together, you know, at the playground. Not just together on Sunday morning for 90 minutes, but gathering together for community group, cleaning up the city together, just hanging out and building each other up, loving one another. That's a beautiful sign of life and of love in this church community. Well done, church. Look at verse 45. It goes on. So they gathered together, but their, but their love for one another went beyond just gathering, being together, and, and it went into action. Look at verse 45 where it says that they sold their property and possessions and gave to everyone as they had need. Did you catch that? They sold their possessions and gave to everyone as they had need. Like, that sounds radical. And at first glance, it almost looks like a kind of Christian communism. Like, like what's going on here? How did it work? So, so someone became a Christian and then kind of entrance was sell everything you have, give it to the apostles, and they'll distribute it? Well, no. Biblical authors agree across the board, scholars agree, that what Luke's describing here is not a a one-time thing where someone kind of sold everything and then entered the church. No, this was a heart posture. This was kind of an ongoing thing. And you see later on in Acts that they do it again, that people sell things as people have need and and they give to others. This was a voluntary thing that the church would do. When, When they had and someone else didn't have, they would sell and they would give to that person who had need. Many were, who were more wealthy, they sold portions of their property or their possessions to pay off their debt, the debts of other people, those who were struggling. Here's the bottom line. Their devotion to Jesus, and in turn their devotion to one another, had a direct impact on their pocketbooks, what they spent their money on, where their treasure was. They no longer saw their stuff and their homes and their money as something to hoard for themselves. They lived with this extravagant kind of way of hospitality, of generosity, loving without limits. When, um, when Jorley and I first got married, we were, um, for lack of better words, very poor. <laughs> and, uh, and in those first few years of marriage, there were a number of times where we actually didn't know how we were going to pay our rents. I was working a ministry job for almost minimum wage, not much more. And Jorley was a full-time student. So there were a number of months where we were just like, God, we, we don't know what we're going to do here. We feel like this is what you're calling us to. 
And there were a number of times where people in our community, like we didn't really share with anyone the kind of state we were in, but there's a number of times where people in our community, and they were usually older people in our community because they had more money, <laughs> which is awesome. Um, but they would give us an envelope with money in it, or they would give us, they would write kind of a note and encourage us, and, and maybe there was a gift card for groceries or those sorts of things. And we left that season of life, which would, could have been very difficult but having been part of this beautiful family of God, I saw people kind of love in very practical and tangible ways. And it really left an impact on our lives. It really stirred our faith to believe that Jesus actually cared, that Jesus would care for all of our needs. And so we see the church living out the gospel, living out their love in these very, very tangible ways. They devoted to learning, to loving, and then to liturgy. Now, this isn't a word that we use very often in our church. The word liturgy, it typically refers to kind of the order of service in a kind of more old school, traditional church, a liturgical church where you sit, stand, kneel, sit, stand, kneel. And when I say the word liturgy, you might even kind of, it might feel stuffy or religious to you. You might think it smells and bells or that sort of thing. But, but I needed an L for my alliteration, so I chose this word. No, I'm just kidding. But I want to look at this idea of liturgy a little bit more broadly. See, Catholics and Anglicans aren't the only ones that have a liturgy. We have a kind of standard order of service, a liturgy here at Rail City too. You know, we have a way that we facilitate our gatherings. If you've been here for more than a couple weeks, you probably know what that is. We sing a few songs together. We, we share announcements. We pray together. We hear from the scripture together. We take communion. We worship again. And then we greet one another and kind of have community. We have a liturgy. That's a liturgy. But more than that, we each have a liturgy of life. A way that we order our lives, and our lives aren't all the same. Mine probably looks different than yours does. But we all have certain habits and rituals and things that we do on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, whether consciously or unconsciously. That's the liturgy of our lives. And studies show that those liturgies, those things that we do regularly on an ongoing basis, they have this profound ability to shape the kind of people that we become. There's a sociologist named James K.A. Smith who describes humans as liturgical animals. <laughs> In other words, he says that, that, people, that we are people of habit. And those habits don't just have kind of this neutral effect on the people we become. No, they, 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 they really shape kind of who we become and what we do. We're shaped and formed by our habits. And, and this isn't necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. But we are formed by what we do. There's lots of research that continues to show that our habits actually have more power to shape who we become than knowledge does, than just simply learning for learning's sake. Thinking well is important, but we can't change just by thinking. We have to put it into practice. By practicing the way of Jesus, by ordering our lives in a way that aligns with him, we begin to look more and more like Jesus. And so there were a number of core practices that the early church embraced. Ways that they ordered their lives, intentional kind of rhythms or liturgies. Verse 46 says they met together regularly in the temple courts. It's kind of like this. They gathered in this kind of setting for large group gatherings. They worshiped together and they would break bread together, it says. That's communion, kind of taking the, the bread and the wine. And, and then they prayed together. See, meeting with other Christians wasn't an add-on to the Christian life. It was core to living out their faith. It's where they learned. It's where they, they, they encouraged one another. It's where they lifted their voices and praised and worshipped Jesus. 
I came across a study this week from Harvard Business School. Actually, Pastor Brad, one of our other pastors, shared this with me. And the study showed that people who attend religious services at least once per week have significantly less, less risk of dying from deaths of despair, is what it's called which includes suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol poisoning. So according to this study done by Harvard, the research showed that weekly church attenders lower their risk of death by despair by over 60%. It's quite interesting. So to all of you who are once a month, there's Harvard Business School says you should up your game and start coming every week. <laughs> but there's something to that. God has hardwired us with this need for community. We find deep human fulfillment, deep fulfillment in our hearts and our souls, the satisfaction when we gather together with other believers. So the early church, they were committed to gathering in large group settings, but they were also committed to to gathering in small settings, in homes, around a table, where they would eat a meal together, where they'd learn and grow and build relationships and hold one another accountable and pray for each other's needs. Do you know that's why we do community groups here as a church? taking cues from Scripture, and especially texts like this. And the reality is, especially in a larger church, like CA Church is, it's, it's very difficult to build those deep spiritual friendships by just coming together once a week in a kind of larger worship setting. It's important to gather big on Sundays, absolutely, where we can take communion and worship together with all the instruments and, and, and where we can learn and be accountable to leadership and do all these sorts of things that are so critical and important to the Christian life. But we also need these spaces where we can have this kind of life-on-life discipleship, where we can actually know others and be known by them, where we can actually grow in deep relationship. Jorley and I launched a new community group this year, not too long ago, and it's already been so life-giving for us. There's something that's so powerful that happens when we allow each other into our lives, where we kind of take off our masks and any facades that we're trying to put on and we eat together tell stories, practice spiritual disciplines together, and laugh together. It's kind of life-on-life type of community. It was essential to the early church, and it should be essential to us if we're going to go the long haul in our faith, gathering together regularly in large group settings, but also in small group settings. Okay, maybe this is a point in my talk where you're feeling kind of jaded or discouraged. Like, yes, that vision of the church that you're presenting sounds wonderful. Yes, this, they were devoted together, this devotion-based, learning, loving, liturgy kind of church community, uh, you know, loving each other with this true and genuine love, but I've never seen it lived out. I've been looking for it for years, and I've never actually found it. Maybe you're here today at CA Church for the very first time, and you're hoping that this will finally be the church that meets your needs, that can be the type of Christian community that we see in Acts that you've been needing in your life. I want to talk for a moment about expectations in community. One author had some, a really great framework that was super helpful in putting these thoughts together. See, see, taking part in a new community, in a new church, usually starts with a lot of excitement. You can put that kind of graphic up on the screen if you have it. But it usually starts with a lot of excitement. And, and, and maybe you, you, you come and you say, wow, I've discovered this new church. And it's like everything I've ever wanted in a church. They have amazing music and the preaching is so relevant and the people are so friendly. And so that's the kind of ex- excitement stage. To coming to a church. And so you get all excited. Maybe you imagine, well, if Sunday mornings are this good, I wonder what it's like in community groups. And so you're excited, go to community group. And that's oftentimes where disillusionment kicks in. 
Because sometimes you think that when you go to community group, this is going to be the community that's going to save you, this kind of sainthood. And you're going to experience this kind of life and fulfillment that you've been after. And then you go and you find out, oh, it's actually just a lot of people just like me who have a lot of problems and messy stuff and are kind of jacked up. And and there's all sorts of stuff going on in their lives. And, And I thought it would be this. And then it turns out they're just like me. And and this stage can be super challenging. And lots of people quit here. But if you can get past this point of disillusionment to the next stage, you recognize, okay, I think I have some idols of community, some false expectations for the people around me. And, And if you can get through all of those things and process that, the difficulties of realizing that this community isn't what's going to save you, What you'll get is this real New Testament love, this agape, unconditional love for one another that despite different and not perfect and rubs you the wrong way sometimes, you can have this kind of iron sharpens iron, beautiful, life-giving, agape love community. But you have to fight for it. You're not going to kind of get there accidentally. You're not going to get there without commitment, without devotion. It takes this deep devotion to Jesus and to his church. But unfortunately, here's how it happens for a lot of people. You, you go to church, you go to, uh, you, you're excited, you go to this church, you go to community group, and you kind of hit that wall, that disillusionment wall. And so oftentimes, then you'll check out another community group. So you'll go back, and you're kind of excited again. Well, it wasn't that one. Maybe we'll go to another one. You check out another one, and you're kind of excited, and you go, and then you kind of hit regular, normal people again. You're disillusioned, and you try it again. And then oftentimes what happens is at that point you figure, well, this church maybe isn't as good as I thought it was going to be. And so you go to another church and then you're excited. And these arrows just keep going back and forth because you keep hitting this wall of disillusionment. But, but, but what, what, what's so beautiful is if you can push past that point, that wall, you will experience a deep love in community, a deep love for one another as you realize that each other are unique and made differently and loved by God, carriers of the Imago Dei. And while different, we can kind of come together as the body of Christ and worship him and grow and sharpen one another. Let's look at a quote from Bonhoeffer. It says, Every human idolized image that is brought into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be broken up so that genuine community can survive. Those who love their dream of Christian community more than Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though that their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. He says, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands, set up their their own laws, and judge one another, even God, accordingly. So, So here's the call. To recognize that we all bring our own baggage and drama and sin and imperfections into community. But to actually work through it together, to commit, to lean into community, to be vulnerable with one another, and, and, and to say, you know, I've projected my needs and wants and baggage on you. And then to make a conscious decision to turn those unfair expectations into love for one another, to prefer one another, to not let our preferences drive us, but instead to commit for the long haul, to journey together. It's in this place of deep commitment that we experience the community that we long for. It doesn't always look like a picture in a kinfolk magazine. Sometimes it's gritty and messy. It looks like iron sharpening iron. 
But if we're to thrive in our Christian life for the long haul, then we need one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this beautiful text of Scripture and this vision that Luke lays out for us of what it looks like to follow you in community. And even as I read that text, I'm so aware that I personally, personally have not lived that way. There's been many times where I have hoarded my stuff, where I haven't loved extravagantly, where, I've, where, where, where I haven't committed, where I've been more preference-based. And God, I just pray, first of all, that, that we wouldn't be filled with condemnation, but that we would run to the foot of the cross and say, say, Jesus, would you help us to live in a way that honors you? Would you help us to love one another and be loved by one another, to, to both give and to receive love, and to be changed, to be grown into your image? I pray that CA Church, that Rail City Campus, would be a church that's marked by a beautiful community of love, empowered by your spirit, to love both one another and the city around us, that that would be the marker of this community. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca slash railcity to find out more information about getting involved in the life and mission of the Rail City campus of CA Church.